Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey everyone and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast for Friday, May 4th, 2018. This would be Season 2, Episode number 17. I guess the post-draft lottery edition of the Bobcast. The second round has been better than the first round edition of the playoff Bobcast. Maybe even the Mayday, Mayday, Mayday edition of the Bobcast. Well, in any case, welcome to May. It finally feels like spring. You know things are heating up, both figuratively and literally, when we're closing in on the final four of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now, we're not there just yet. And don't tell anybody, but I am taping this intro on Thursday afternoon. So I don't know what happened in Game 4 of the Pittsburgh-Washington series or Nashville-Winnipeg, but how good have those series been? The whole Capitals versus Penguins playoff dynamic is crazy. Uh, we'll talk about the Tom Wilson hit in a little bit. That Winnipeg-Nashville series, my goodness, that's like a cup final on steroids. It's been so good. Uh, Vegas and San Jose, it's now down to a best of three. And as much as the Golden Knights have been, what, the story of the NHL this regular season and playoffs? You know what? Those San Jose Sharks, they're sneaky good this year. No Jumbo Joe. A uh, bunch of guys who seem to come out of nowhere. I'm looking at you, Marcus Scorenson. And uh, i got to tell you, Pete DeBoer and his staff in San Jose, they do a fantastic job, and they've given themselves a chance here to get to uh, the Final Four. Um, in any case, this second round, I think, has given us a lot more excitement and drama than we got in the first round, so very much amen to that. Um, and this is also the time of the year, I should point out, when the panel, and by panel, I mean myself, James Duffy, and Puffy, a.k.a. Sean Cameron. I can't include O in this because O doesn't come to the Stanley Cup final with us, So, and, and this is what I'm talking about here. So maybe we'll, we'll add Ray in, but Ferraro's off at the World Championships. In any case, the panel starts to give serious thought to where we want to go for the Cup final. Now, this is important stuff. Not that we control any of it, but um, Cup Final Anywhere is great. We, we, we love all your cities, so nobody be offended by what I'm going to say, even though I know you will. But each place that's left in the, uh, the playoffs has unique pluses and sometimes some minuses too. Now, a lot goes into this equation. There's, you know, the overall atmosphere, the arena, what hotels available, the bars, restaurants, flights, connections, all those sorts of things. And all I know is this, wherever we go for the cup final in the West, it's going to be pretty wild. Now, a a cup final in any Canadian city, uh, what, for the first time since, what, 2011? Has there there been anybody in the Stanley Cup final from Canada since then? I think Vancouver was the last one. I'll have to do my fact-checking here. I should have done that before I started talking. Um, But in any case, uh, it was cool in Vancouver in uh, 2011, and it would be really cool if we're going to Winnipeg. And the fact that it would be the first time for the Jets with their passionate fan base, that would be off the charts. The buzz would be incredible. Um, MTS, Bell MTS Center is as loud as it gets anywhere in the NHL. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like if the Jets 2.0 were in the cup final. And that whole scene outside, uh, there's as many people outside, way more people outside than inside. Um, and I'm already starting to count up my Air Canada Aeroplan segments because if the Cup Final's in Winnipeg and we're going somewhere in the east, we're going to be flying through Toronto, so that's two segments for every trip. Uh, Got to get back to 50K. That's looking pretty good. Um, if it's Nashville or Vegas, I mean, say no more. We did Nashville last year, and it was probably the most fun we've ever had at a Cup Final. Uh, just the atmosphere in the rink, the atmosphere in the town, the availability of uh, drinking establishments on Lower Broadway, uh, going to the Gulch, nice restaurants there, uh, hanging out with Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman. Well, we didn't really hang out with Keith and Nicole, but uh, Duffy and myself were sitting a table over from them at a really nice restaurant. That must count for something. Then there's Crazy Town. It seems to be Puffy's favorite place. 
So uh, there's all sorts of great reasons to want to go to Nashville again. Sorry, Winnipeg, but um, if it's if it's Nashville, we're fine with that. If it's Winnipeg, so be it too. But I mean, hey, what about Vegas? Like that would be insane. Imagine this, the Vegas Golden Knights in their expansion year in the Stanley Cup final. This is the story that just keeps on giving, and I know San Jose is going to have a lot to say about that in this final uh, final three games of of their series. But um, th- this whole Vegas thing is is nuts, and everybody knows what kind of town Vegas is to begin with. But the fact that it's become a hockey town so quickly, and the atmosphere in in the the, the rink in Vegas is is as good, if not better, than anywhere else. I mean, who saw that coming? I'm not sure I did. Um, but that would be a lot of fun. Um, imagine if it's a Vegas-Nashville conference final. Might want to cover that one, too. But as I said to our good friends in Winnipeg, I'm, I'm cool. You guys win. That'll be fun. We, we look forward to coming to Winnipeg because um, that will be off the charts. Now, the, the forgotten city in this whole equation in the West is San Jose. Uh, that would probably be number four in our Western Cup final power ranking. So, sorry, San Jose, we do love you. We were just there a couple of years ago. Lovely place. Weather's fantastic, and the cool California vibe is nice. Can walk back from the rink. It's a healthy walk, but we did a lot of walking in San Jose, and that's good. We need to stay healthy. Uh, but let's not kid anybody. San Jose, generally speaking, a little sleepier than Nashville or Vegas, and it's kind of worlds apart in atmosphere from from Winnipeg, although once you get in the Shark Tank, there's another place like Winnipeg, all these rinks that have got the nice low flat roof um, where the sound really reverberates. The, the, these are the best places in the, the league to watch a game. They, they don't have these big cavernous stadiums. Um, but uh, San Jose presents some challenges with a little more travel. Sometimes you have to fly through San Francisco. If you're not flying through San Francisco, the availability into San Jose is not ideal. But I will say this, San Jose is also close to wine country, and my luxury consultant, Sean McKenzie, when he was last in San Jose, organized uh, a trip to the Ridge Montebello Vineyards, and I love Ridge wine. If um, you want a wine recommendation, but you've got to spend some money because it's not, it's not the cheap stuff. You know, LCBO, you've got to go 40 50 bucks to get the low-end Ridge, um, and it can obviously go up from there. But any Ridge is fantastic. They have mostly Zinfandels, but they also have a great... Fantastic cab. So if San Jose is in, so be it. I'm all in for a ridge visit. I don't think we can lose in the West. Now, I'm not going to lie. The Eastern options are what I would call a lot more traditional, um, especially Pittsburgh. Love Pittsburgh. Underrated city. We've been there, done that a couple of times over the last two years. I could handle a third one. What we would lack in newness or excitement in Pittsburgh, we could make up for in, in comfort, routine, we're like a well-oiled machine in Pittsburgh. We know where our spot is in the arena. We know everything would be exactly the same as it was the last couple of years, and there's something to be said for that. Um, i got to tell you, though, D.C. would be amazing. Ovi in a cup final, finally. D.C. is such a great city, too. I mean, it's, it's so much fun to visit. There's so many great things to see and do. i got a pal there, Jeremiah. He doesn't work for the CIA. I just want that known. He's not a member of the CIA, Um, but it would be great to see him and uh, our friends in D.C. for a cup final. And going to Georgetown is is very, very cool. Now, Boston and Tampa Bay, um, not as routine as Pittsburgh, but still somewhat routine. Uh, We were in Boston twice in the last little while for the cup final that they won against Vancouver and the cup final that they lost against the Blackhawks. Um, Original six city. It's, uh, it's a fantastic city anytime. The Garden is a really good building to work out of, uh, great facilities, and more importantly, they have fantastic candy in the press box. That's a very important consideration. Tampa Bay is, is, is a very cool city, if by cool you mean really hot and humid. Now, we do do a lot of panel hits outside, and the sweat factor in Tampa Bay is extremely high. And... Um, that's not good for Ray Ferraro because Ray uh, would be the first to tell you he's a, he's a sweater, very healthy guy, and he uh, uh, works hard and perspires a lot. And if we have to walk somewhere for an outdoor hit, by the time we get there, it looks like somebody uh, threw Ray in the water. But uh, in any case, the hotels in Tampa, great walking distance to the rink. Sitting outside in the Florida heat after a game, having a cold drink uh, is really spectacular. So um, for the sake of newness, the most novel experience in the East, I would, I would say Washington might head the power ranking list in the East. 
Um, and it's pretty much, uh, I think, a dead heat between Winnipeg, Nashville, and Vegas in the West. So now that I've offended all the fan bases and all the chambers of commerce for a half dozen or so National Hockey League cities, let's get down to business. Well, I mentioned this is the post-draft lottery edition of the Bobcast, so let's talk about that draft lottery. Congratulations to the Buffalo Sabres, a much-needed win in the draft lottery. They earned last place this year. They didn't try to get there. They just got there. They earned every bit of it. And uh, you don't always benefit uh, with a win in the draft lottery when you're last overall, but the Sabres did. And culturally, they absolutely need a shot in the arm, and Rasmus Dahlin is all that and more. So um, i got to think that that's just one of uh, many additions or deletions that will happen over the course of this summer in Buffalo. General Manager Jason Botterill will be trying to affect the, uh, the much-needed culture change. I know that's a, a bogus phrase for a lot of people in hockey, but culturally, um, the Buffalo Sabres have really lost their way, and uh, they need to get that pointed back in the right direction. And um, in that instance, uh, Darlene's a great, uh, great start. The big winner, obviously, in the draft lottery were the Carolina Hurricanes going from uh, uh, 11 up to number two. So new owner Tom Dundon. I don't know if this is true or not, but when they did the draft lottery and they keep the, they had the, the couple of hours in between the first part of the draft lottery and the second part of the draft lottery when, when the three finalists found out what the order of selection was going to be. Um, but the, the word on the street very quickly was even if Carolina won the lottery and had the first overall pick that they were very much interested in letting the league know that, that uh, it might be available for the right price. Um, that would be in keeping, I guess, with the way Tom Dundon does business. The path less traveled, unconventional, doesn't mean they were going to trade the first overall pick, but they were going to look at it. So uh, Carolina moves up to two, and of course the Montreal Canadiens moved up one spot, um, and Ottawa moved down two, and Arizona moved down two, so now the top of the draft looks like Buffalo one, Carolina two, Montreal three, Ottawa four, Arizona five. Um, now it's interesting uh, because when, once the draft once the draft lottery was over, uh, Tom Dundon and the Carolina Hurricanes made it clear that the number two pick is very much up for grabs and that they're going to consider all their options. Well, as fate would have it, um, they hired Rick Dudley away from the Montreal Canadiens to be their VP of Hockey Ops. And if you're looking for somebody to trade an elite pick in the National Hockey League draft, well, look no further than Rick Dudley. This is your guy. He's got lots of experience on that front. Three times in a five-year period, between 1999 and 2003, Rick Dudley traded the number one pick in the draft. Three times. He had the first overall pick, and three times he gave it up. Now, in 1999... Uh, that was obviously the year of a lot of sedinery going on. That's when Brian Burke um, moved heaven and earth to make sure that he was going to get the, the Twins at number two and number three overall. And if you remember, Patrick Steffen went number one to the Atlanta Thrashers. Well, Dudley had the number one pick. Tampa Bay owned the number one pick. And by the time the sedinery was all done... Dudley ended up getting the fourth overall pick in that draft, but then he turned around and didn't use it. He flipped it right away to the New York Rangers, who took Pavel Brendel, and Dudley got a bunch of other assets um, uh, for future drafts and that draft. And I don't want to say it amounted to a whole lot of nothing, but that whole 1999 draft, very quickly as a sidebar here, listen to this roster of first-round picks. Patrick Steffen, Daniel Sedin, Henrik Sedin, Pavel Brendel, Tim Conley, Brian Finley, Chris Beach, Taylor Pyatt, Jamie Lundmark, Branislav Mezzi, Oleg Saprikin, Dennis Schwitke, Yanni Rita, Jeff Gilson, Scott Kelman, David Tanabe, Barrett Jackman. Thank you, Barrett. Barrett was a hell of a good defenseman. Konstantin Koltsov, Kirill Safranov, Barrett Heiston, Nick Boynton. Nick Boynton, pretty good D. Maxime Ouellette, Steve McCarthy, Lucas Sarita, Mikhail Kuleshov, Martin Havlat, 26th overall. Martin Havlat, hell of a player. Ari Ahonen, and Christian Kudrak. There's 28 names in the first round of the 1999 draft. And you know what? Not a lot of them turned out. Now, in 2002, Dudley also had the first overall pick. That time with the Florida Panthers. Rick Nash was the consensus number one that year, but Dudley didn't want the forward. He wanted defenseman Jay Bowmister. 
So he did a flip-flop with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So Columbus and Florida basically flip-flop first-round picks. Columbus had the third overall pick. Florida, of course, had the first overall pick. So they just did a flip-flop. And all it was really done was um, in exchange for the option to flip-flop picks the next year if Florida wanted to do that, if Dudley wanted to do that. Now he ended up not wanting to do that. So basically, once he got Bo Mister, he was happy. The, the Atlanta Thrashers, by the way, were in between Florida and Columbus that year. And the Thrashers took Kari Lettinen with the second overall pick. Um, so in any case, uh, there was the second occasion where Rick Dudley had the number one overall pick and decided to trade it. Now, one year later, in 2003, Dudley, of course, once again, has the first overall pick in the draft. And that was a year where the big debate was, do you want the big center out of the Peterborough Pete's Eric Stahl or the big power scoring winger from the Oshawa Generals, Nathan Horton? Or what about an elite goaltender, Marc-Andre Fleury? Um, And that was a year that, with the number one overall pick, um, Dudley traded it to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, the official trade was the first pick overall and the 73rd pick in the draft, which turned out to be Daniel Carcillo, going to the Pittsburgh Penguins for the third overall pick, which Florida used to take Nathan Horton, and the 55th pick, which was Stefan Meyer, and uh, forward Michael Samuelson. Um, obviously on this one, Pittsburgh was really happy with the way that worked out. They got Marc-Andre Fleury number one overall, and the question, the risk of taking a goalie number one, well, that obviously paid off in spades for the Penguins getting Fleury. And I think the Carolina Hurricanes were real happy that it worked out that way, too, because they ended up winning a Stanley Cup with Eric Stahl, the number two overall pick in that draft, and maybe didn't work out quite so well for Dudley and Nathan Horton, who ultimately had his back, has had his NHL career cut short by uh, severe back problems. But uh, in any case, three times in five years, Dudley traded the number one overall pick. Now, as executive vice president, of the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, Vice President of Hockey Opstrath, rather, of the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, he's not the sole guy determining whether that pick's going to be moved or not, but obviously along with interim general manager Don Waddell and owner Tom Dundon, this is something that they're going to look long and hard at. Now, Dudley might jokingly say, well, since we know Rasmus Dahlin is the number one pick in this draft, trading the second overall pick is kind of like trading the first overall pick because it's a foregone conclusion that Darlene is going number one. So all the speculation is, who's going to go number two? Which brings us to the first question on this week's Bobcast. Uh, This one from Tommy Enroth. Tommy's had a question before. He's a good man. Um, Hi, Bob. I'm a very big fan of yours and loving all the work you do and really appreciate all your hard work. Thank you, Tommy. I do watch and listening as much as I can on tsn.ca and always listening when you're on Leafs Lunch in the Overdrive Radio Show. And, of course, I'm loving the Bobcast. And the podcast episode is always the highlight of my week when you air a new episode. I've also just recently read your book, Hockey Confidential, and really enjoyed it, especially the chapters on John Tavares and P.K. Subban. Uh, You truly are a role model and a big inspiration to myself. Thank you very much. I'm a hockey guy myself. I eat and breathe and live hockey. One of my biggest interests is the draft and the evolution of young junior hockey players. I'm also currently coaching and scouting a little bit in hockey, and my biggest dream in life is to become an NHL scout one day. Now to my question. What's your thoughts about Carolina ending up with the second overall pick in this year's draft? Do you think it's a possibility they will pick Philip Zadina over Andrei Svechnikov to build on the Czech chemistry from this past World Junior Championship. Big thanks again for all your work, and you're truly a big inspiration to me. That from Tommy Enroth. Well, thank you very much, Tommy. That Czech connection that uh, Tommy's talking about, of course, is the fact that Martin Nikash is a Carolina first-round pick, and he played very, very well with Philip Zadina at the World Junior Championship. Zadina was lights out in Halifax of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League this year, but Andrei Svechnikov... The big Russian winger, we've talked about all these guys on the Bobcast all year long. Uh, he was lights out for the Barry Colts. So it's an interesting um, situation for um, Tom Dundon, Don Waddell, and Rick Dudley, uh, and what to do with that second overall pick. Now, I've talked to Dudley before about the whole concept of trading um, the number one overall pick or an elite pick in the draft. And, and what it really boils down to is if you're the trading team, in this case Carolina, um, potentially, 
how far down are you prepared to go? So what you need to do is you sit down with your scouts and you look at your list and you determine the various cutoff points. So we've got this guy ranked number two on our list. We've got this guy three, this guy four. When do you get to a point where you say to yourself, ooh, I don't know if I'd feel good about taking that guy in the first round. So how many legitimate considerations are there for you at number two? Svechnikov has got to be a legitimate consideration. Philip Zadine has got to be a legitimate consideration. Maybe Brady Kachuk is a legit consideration at number two. Um, maybe Evan Bouchard of the London Knights is a legit consideration. But the, the exercise you do as an organization is to figure out where your cutoff point is and how many spots you're prepared to drop and at what cost. So then you begin the, 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 the parlance with the, uh, the various teams that might be interested in that second overall pick. Now, historically, recently anyways, teams have not been willing to pay a huge premium to move up um, to, to, to number two. So will it, we, we've had conversations between teams in past drafts about moving up a few spots. But at the end of the day, they usually don't happen. And the reason they don't happen is because those teams at 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 are not prepared to pay a huge premium to get up to number two because the player they'll take at number two isn't all that different from the player they might get at 4, 5, 6, 7, or 8. That's the theory anyways. Now, is this year different? Um, If you're picking four, I wouldn't think so because if you're the Ottawa Senators, would you pay a premium to go to two? I think if you're Ottawa, you just sit tight and wait to see which one of Svechnikov, Zadina, and Kachuk falls to you. So that's going to be the exercise that the Carolina Hurricanes go through, and that'll be for them to determine what's on the table in terms of a concrete offer and how far down are they prepared to slide. Now, if Carolina keeps the pick and decides to choose at number two, who are they going to take? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I've got to believe that it's one of either Andrei Svechnikov or Philip Zadina. Uh, I think it's rare to, to be sitting with two guys that can score goals as naturally as both of them do. And it's interesting that Dudley's moving over, moved over from the Montreal Canadiens um, because Dudley spent a lot of time invested in this year's draft. Now, that's not to suggest Montreal's at a disadvantage. Um, Trevor Timmins, Shane Sherla, um, they're full-time and all over this. Um, but Dudley knew that this was going to be a very deep draft, and the Montreal Canadiens had the, were going to have a high first-round pick, and they've got a whole boatload of second-round picks. So this could be a defining draft for the Montreal Canadiens in terms of, quote-unquote, a, a soft rebuild, if you want to call it that. But in any case, Dudley is very well-equipped to go into Carolina with a lot of knowledge and a lot of input as to what he thinks. So, um, as I said, I, I think Svechnikov or Zadina makes the most sense at that, but it's a coin flip for us. And while Dudley and the scouting uh, staff in Carolina probably has a firm idea right now of which way they would want to go, um, I'd only be guessing to suggest which way it is. Montreal, of course, is picking third overall, and uh, lots of draft lottery questions from Hab fans. This one from uh, Adam Courage in St. John's, Newfoundland. Hi, Bob. What do you think it would cost the Habs to move up to number one or number two in the draft? Do you think that Buffalo and Carolina would be open to offers, or would the Habs be better off standing pat at number three? Um, I don't believe that Buffalo is going to trade or even entertain offers on number one. I think that's a non-starter, as I said. Um, Carolina would be prepared to entertain offers on number two. But, I mean, if I'm the Montreal Canadiens, I'm not paying a premium um, for uh, the difference between Svechnikov or Zadina, uh, assuming that's what they do. And on that front, here's a, another question. Um, this one from Itai and Tebby. Uh, Bob, who do you think the Habs will go after with the number three pick? Do you think they will keep Pacioretty, go for Tavares overall? What do you think they will do this offseason? Well, I'll delay the already tavares talk for a moment and uh, just talk about the number three pick and wrap that into this next question from Matthew Carbone, who says, 
What do you think the Habs will do with the third overall pick? Lots of debate if they select Sedina, try to move up to second for Svechnikov or go off the board and take Jesperi Kotkaniemi. Would drafting the big Finn be seen as another off-the-reservation moment? Hesitate to use that phrase, but I'll explain the significance of it in a moment. Um, On Matthew's question, uh, let's take this one by one. Uh, What do I think the Habs will do? Well, I think logic would suggest they would take whichever one of Svechnikov or Zadina doesn't go at number two. Um, But Matthew raised the possibility of Jesperi Kotkanimi, the big Finnish center who played so well for Finland at the under-18s. Now, as fate would have it, uh, Montreal Canadian superfan and uh, the originator of the Recruits website, which is a draft website, Grant McKegg, a rather cantankerous uh, fellow from the Ottawa Valley, um, he just did a mock draft um, in the last 24 hours where he had the Montreal Canadiens taking Kotkiniemi at number three overall. And Montreal Gazette columnist Jack Todd in the past week wrote a big column about how he thinks it would be really swell if uh, Kotkaniemi were to be taken by the Montreal Canadiens because of their very specific need for help in the middle of the ice. Um, and, and listen, um, all of these things are debatable and, and fun to talk about. I personally think that if I'm picking third in the Montreal Canadian spot, I'm just going to take whichever one is left over from Svechnikov or Zadina. I'm not going to overthink it, but other people will. And, and in, the, in the mind of McKaig and some others, Kotkaniemi is a rising star in this draft, um, a big center. And there's no question Montreal could use a big center. There's also no question they could use somebody that can score goals rather effortlessly. And Zadina can certainly do that, as can Svechnikov. So as I said, I'm not sure I would overthink it, but that is going to be lots of fodder, lots of talk, lots of debate about that whole aspect of uh, Kotkaniemi positional drafting and goal-scoring drafting for the Montreal Canadiens with that pick. Okay, circling back to uh, Itai's question about Pacioretty and Tavares, uh, here's a question from J.P. Michaud, who says, Hey, Bob, I don't listen to many podcasts, two to be exact, and your Bobcast is one of them. For what it's worth, it's way better than the Rubber Boots podcast. Of course it is. Admittedly, I'm not up to date, and maybe this question was already asked, sort of, uh, but whatever, here goes. What are the chances that my beloved Habs are able to sign a big-ticket free agent this summer, cough, cough, John Tavares, cough, cough, or make a legit blockbuster trade to fill some needs using some of their many draft picks, or will they build through the draft? Thanks for your time, J.P. Michaud. Well, if you take J.P.'s question and you mix it with Itai's question about Pacioretty and Tavares, it's like the perfect storm. Here are my thoughts. First off, let's talk Tavares for a minute at the risk of upsetting New York Islander fans. Um, haven't heard anything on that front lately. It's been deathly quiet. And to that I would say, I would think here in the next week or two, we would probably hear something from the Tavares camp in terms of uh, charting direction for the future. Um, my gut says he's not going back to the New York Islanders. Um, I'm not reporting that. I don't want to radio myself here. But I'm suggesting all signs are indicating to me that John Tavares is much more likely to go to market than he is to say, give me your best offer, New York Islanders, and I'm going to stay. Um, so we'll see on that. As I said, it's been, uh, been very quiet. Now, if he goes to market, and again, I don't want to radio myself or podcast myself, so to speak, but I'm thinking that Montreal is not likely at the head of the class um, that would be in the running for John Tavares. Not to say that they wouldn't want to be. I'm sure they would be. I'm sure the big off-season strategy for the Montreal Canadiens is to go at John Tavares if he's in free agency really, really hard. I'm just not convinced that, that John Tavares would have, have Montreal at the top of his list. Now, how do I know that? I don't. I'm just voicing an opinion that I think there'll be lots of teams... In, in the National Hockey League, who are interested in Tavares, San Jose, St. Louis, Montreal. Um, the list goes on and on, I'm sure. And he'll have a lot of choices to make. 
And I would think that for the right team that gives him a chance to win right now, um, that he might be willing to um, take a, uh, uh, oh, I don't want to call it a hometown discount because there's nothing hometown about going somewhere new. Uh, and I wasn't referencing the Toronto Maple Leafs at all there because I don't think that's in the mix either. So to recap, uh, opinion-based only, I don't think John Tavares is headed back to the New York Islanders. And if he goes to free agency, I'd be really surprised if he's headed to the Montreal Canadiens. As for other free agents, well, we'll see what that brings. As for blockbuster trades, I do have to believe that the Montreal Canadiens are going to renew their interest in potentially trading Max Pacioretty at the draft and see what they can do on that front. Um, I don't believe that the way things currently stand, um, barring a change, um, that Montreal wants to make a long-term commitment to Pacioretty. He's got a year left on his deal. Um, I think that they want to look at some, explore some different options and that possibly trading Pacioretty would satisfy those. But by the same token, um, they can't give him away. And he didn't have a great year this year. The Montreal Canadiens didn't have a great year. Um, but he's still a pretty consistent goal scorer, and you can't give these guys away. Um, I think Pacioretty, in a perfect world, would love to stay on Montreal in so many levels. I think he considers it home now, and, um, and he, he loves playing for the Canadians. But I'm not sure that it's a marriage that's necessarily working at this point. So I would expect that uh, Pacioretty's name to be front and center in a lot of trade talk between now and the NHL draft. Next question comes from Sebastian. It's a draft lottery question, but more of a generic one. Hey, Bob, I was thinking it could be better, even more entertaining way to do the draft lottery. My idea is basically that the teams who do not make the playoffs go into lottery as they do now with better odds for the worst team, only that instead of drawing for the top three spots, they draw for all 15 available picks. This would further eliminate the tanking and make the postseason a whole lot more interesting for the fans whose teams miss the playoffs, while the bad teams still have the best chance of winning a good pick, but no guarantee. What do you think? Would it be too big a risk that a team stays bad for a long amount of time? Really enjoy the Bobcast and would love to hear your opinion on this. Hypothetical. Best regards, Sebastian. Yeah, you know what, Sebastian? I I do think that um, putting all 15 picks up for lottery would uh, would be a little much. I think the NHL's found the right formula here. In fact, there are some people who believe it's already too much having teams move up like the Carolina Hurricanes did, nine spots, or the way the Dallas Stars did last year uh, to move up into the top three and get uh, Miro Heskinen. Um, so I, I think you know the league realized that if you just put the lottery in place for the, the one spot and you can only move down one spot... Um, you're still, in a way, encouraging teams to tank and that there needed to be a greater disincentive to uh, finish in last place. But the idea of putting up all 15 picks on a lottery and just and even with the weighted odds, I still think it's a little too much of a, a hodgepodge and uh, the bad teams do need to be rewarded in some way for being bad. Another draft question, this one from Finland. Hi, Bob, I'm writing to you from Tampere, Finland. I have a two-part question. When you pull NHL scouts to put together the TSN draft rankings, how do you know they're being honest with their lists and not trying to affect public opinion by putting some players higher or lower than where they actually have them? And are they happy to reveal their sleeper prospects? In the past, guys like Philip Heatel and Alexander Texier last year. Thanks in, adva- in, in advance. With best wishes, Yoki Nevalainen. Well, Yoki... Um, to answer your question very succinctly, um, I do know that scouts can play around with the draft list that they give me. I understand that. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, because I'm talking to 10 scouts, um, because they may be fudging things a little bit here or there, it still ends up with a pretty good, pretty representative list. And, and here's the bottom line on the TSN draft rankings. The draft rankings are not meant to... Um, forecast who are going to be the best players in the National um, Hockey League for a long time. The draft rankings are to project the order, the order we think the players will be taken in that draft. So it's a forecast of the actual draft itself, not a forecast 
of the best players in the uh, in their careers, not like a scouting service. But uh, I have no doubt that uh, sometimes NHL scouts will artificially suppress or artificially inflate uh, a prospect or two. But I, I've worked with these scouts for a long time. Trust me on that. Um, and you build up a level of trust. And, and the only person who ever gets any indication of what these scouts are thinking um, is, is me. And I don't share it with anybody else. Um, the numbers basically go into a hopper to uh, come up with our consensus rankings. And, and I guess the, the validity or the um, positive reinforcement that we've gotten from the TSN rankings over the years in terms of successfully predicting where in the draft a player is going to be taken um, is the bottom line. So um, I don't want to say that it's the, the draft rankings are immune to artificial uh, elevation or depression by individual NHL scouts, but I think we, uh, we overcome them. And, and quite frankly, on guys like Heedle and, and Texier, um, scouts are pretty honest about stuff like that. These guys don't stay a secret for very long. And in fact, this was a year where Dominic Bach, um, the, the German player, uh, very early on a bunch of scouts were on to him and um, there's no real secrets in the scouting business anymore. I don't think. Okay, let's dig into some controversy here. Head hits. Tom Wilson. This from Tyler. Hi, Bob. My name is Tyler Kern. I'm a relatively new listener to the Bobcast. My first one was the one you did just prior to the trade deadline. I've tried to listen to all of them since then. My question is, does Tom Wilson deserve punishment or have the timings of two on-the-edge hits in two consecutive games caused more of an issue than the two hits themselves should have? At first glance, they both look horrific, but then he has a suspension history and he also slew-footed players in this series. One more question, if I'm allowed to use that as a parlay into it. Is this what the Caps have to do in order to beat the Pens? It seems like every year they're making dirty hits. Niskan into Crosby last year, Wilson and all the high hits this year. They cannot beat the Penguins on pure skill, so it appears on the surface at least they are resorting to this. Thanks, Bob. That from Tyler Kern. Um, similar question. This one from Tom Fendley. Different angle. Uh, very disturbing injury to a Pittsburgh player. Hockey is a game of sportsmanship. NHL, NHL referees create an entirely new rulebook for the playoffs. A sad example for an exceptional sport. You can still have intense, solid hitting in the game of hockey if you enforce the rulebook consistently. There are many views of the Wilson hit. Everyone is focusing on the head contact. Watch the hit again. Wilson charging at an opponent leaves the ice as he jumps at the Pittsburgh player. Question is, how can this hit be acceptable? When Wilson jumps, there is an intent to injure that from Tom Fendley. I could probably come up with a bunch of uh, um, questions or comments from Winnipeg Jet fans who say uh, the hits are clean. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of former NHL players, my former colleague Aaron Ward, um, Brendan Witt, mind you, former cap, but nevertheless um, thought it was the cleanest of clean hits. Uh, Paul Bissonnette probably fell in that category. And then Dan Carcillo, former tough guy in the National Hockey League, whose um, latest initiative is player safety and player health, especially as it pertains to hits to the head and has done a lot of work with the Players' Tribune on that front, um, taking a great issue with this type of hit. So where do we start on all of this? Let me first say that uh, I don't think Tom Wilson should have been suspended um, on the hit on Brian Dumoulin. Alexander Ovechkin was coming in to hit Dumoulin. Dumoulin pulled up. He changed the position of his body at the last second. Wilson caught him in the head. I realize why people don't want to give a guy like Tom Wilson uh, the benefit of the doubt. Tom Wilson is a predatory hockey player. Let's, let's be right up front about that. Um, and I say that in the same context, I would say that Scott Stevens was a predatory hockey player, that Nicholas Cronvall was a predatory hockey player, that uh, my old pal Colby Armstrong, when guys used to come out from behind the net with their head down, was a predatory hockey player. Um, and that is, and, and again, it, there's a negative connotation to predatory, I understand that, but hockey is a contact game, and there's no question whether it's the NHL or whether it's the National Football League, there are players who look for opportunities to take their lick on a guy um, when he's most vulnerable. And I guess they're entitled to do that as long as they do it within the rules. Now, the rules over the years have changed. What was um, 
considered a great hit back in the Scott Stevens era is not considered a great hit now. And Tom Wilson does have this reputation, and I understand why a lot of people didn't want to give him the benefit of the doubt on the Dumoulin hit. But trying to look at it objectively, if it wasn't Tom Wilson on the Dumoulin hit, we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, But it is Tom Wilson, and the fact that we came back right the next game and he lowered the boom on Zach Aston Reese, causing a broken jaw and a concussion, um, means that we do have to talk about this hit. The morning after the Wilson hit on Zach Aston Reese, I was on both TSN Radio in Toronto with Michael Landsberg and uh, TSN Radio in Montreal with Connor McKenna. And at the time, I'd looked at the, the views that we had of the, uh, the hit. And I was of the opinion, and, and, I, and I duly noted it, that the NHL would be looking for more angles and that this was one of these really tricky ones because if you look at the one angle... Um, from Tom Wilson's side of the hit, um, looking across the ice from the referee's side, for example, um, it looked like a body-on-body hit with incidental head contact and obviously causing uh, a devastating amount of damage to Zach Aston Reese. Um, but I, for that reason, I thought I wouldn't be surprised if Tom Wilson once again skated away um, without getting a suspension. Um, because in the National Hockey League, and this was the point I was making on radio, whether you like it or not, if a player delivers a full body-on-body hit and his shoulder drives forcefully into the face or the head or the jaw of the player, as long as there was body-on-body contact, full body-on-body contact, that is permissible. And I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The way the rules are currently written in the National Hockey League. The way Rule 48 is currently written about illegal hits to the head in the National Hockey League. Making contact, significant contact to the head and causing devastating injury is legal if you have committed a full body-on-body hit. And on the first views that we saw of the Wilson hit on Zach Aston Reese, I thought that might be the case. Now, um, as the day wore on and the suspension was doled out and it was a three-game suspension in the playoffs, which is a hefty number um, relative to what we normally see, um, there was a different angle. And, and that was the, the angle from the stands or from directly behind Tom Wilson going into Zach Aston Reese. And what it showed is that there was an incredible amount of principal point of contact with Wilson's shoulder to Zach Aston Reese's jaw and head. And that is why the National Hockey League saw fit to suspend him for what, from the other angle, looked like a full body-on-body hit. Uh, It wasn't as much body-on-body as it was shoulder-to-head when you look at that angle. And that's why there's so much debate And that's why there's so much war of words going on between former National Hockey League players like Carcillo and others. And that's why there's so much debate going on on Twitter between Penguin fans and Washington Capital fans. Um, I'm entirely in support of the suspension, to be perfectly honest with you. When I saw that uh, more detailed angle that showed Wilson's shoulder forcefully driving into the head of of, uh, Zach Aston Reese. I realized that the other angle showing full body-on-body contact, well, I don't want to say it was an illusion, but it wasn't the whole picture. And once I saw the whole picture, I was that. Now, I should point this out, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm a believer now that no hits to the head, no excuses. The Ken Dryden mantra from his book Game Change, the story of Steve Montador, but it's Obviously, the, the life and death of Steve Montador, but it's obviously so much more than that. Um, I've said it before on the Bobcast. I'll say it again. Um, I'm now in favor of the, the double, uh, double IHF blanket rule. No hits to the head, no excuses. If you hit somebody in the head, even if it's accidental, it's a penalty. And I know the, I know the reverse argument to that. I know well, there's not going to be any hitting in the game. It's a man's game. I understand all the issues perfectly well. I just know that the stakes of what we're dealing with with head trauma, whether you care to admit it or not, are too great. 
and that sooner or later the National Hockey League is going to have to get on the right side of science and have a blanket rule that says if you hit somebody in the head, it's a penalty or a suspension. And what it does is it starts to eliminate the endless look at camera angles that we went through on this. Um, And as I said, um, Wilson ended up getting suspended anyway. But if we hadn't had that other angle, he would have walked. And I don't know, even for a contact sport like hockey or the National Hockey League, National Football League rather, that you can justify hits of that nature directly to somebody's head and say that's part of the game. I just don't think we can reconcile that anymore. And there haven't been enough general managers or players or people in the Players Association or the National Hockey League to reverse that. But that's the bottom line. And I do believe that if the NHL doesn't take this into their own hands, somewhere down the line somebody's going to legislate because U.S. Congress, Canadian Parliament, um, head trauma is a very serious thing. And the health and welfare of people who play games, contact sports, um, I know we don't want government to get involved uh, a lot of the time, but on issues of health and welfare, they're going to get involved if the leagues don't. So anyways, that's my two cents on that, and I know that uh, if you uh, fall into the, the pro-Wilson camp or the anti-Wilson camp, uh, you're going to argue seven ways to Sunday. That's fine, but uh, it's, uh, this is something that's not going to go away. By the way, quick postscript on the, uh, the Wilson discussion. Um, there's, a, there's some quotes from me that are circulating out there widely uh, in the last day or two, and they were the quotes that I gave on uh, radio uh, Wednesday morning uh, on both Toronto and Montreal. And that was when I'd only seen the one angle of the, uh, of the Wilson hit. And I said, for the record, it looks like a clean hit by NHL rules. Um, obviously, since then, I've seen other angles. And so what, what I said and what was true to me on Wednesday morning is no longer true now. But of course, the Internet being the Internet, a lot of those comments are now starting to filter to more people taking on a life of their own. And there's a whole bunch of people out there saying, Bob McKenzie thinks the Tom Wilson hit was perfectly clean. According to the rules. Well, that was on Wednesday morning. Um, by Wednesday afternoon or Thursday, I felt differently. Anyways, question here from WOB. Hey, Bob, what do you think about the NHL adding a rule that says any player injured by an illegal play and is forced to, to leave the game uh, can be replaced by the extra skater that took warm-ups? A team that loses a player because of another team's player with an illegal play shouldn't be put at a disadvantage for the rest of the game especially if you lose a D-man in the first period. Interesting concept. I don't think the league's looking at it anytime soon, but I will say this. Um, Chicago Blackhawks, specifically their president, John McDonough, um, suggested to the National Hockey League that maybe hockey should be more like baseball. That if hockey has a 23-man roster, why can't you use the 23-man roster in one game? Now, this sounds bizarre, but it's like having a taxi squad in the dressing room, fully dressed, ready to go, and deciding just discretionary in the middle of the game, ah, you know what, we're down two goals. I don't need my defensive defenseman and my checking line center anymore. I need a rushing defenseman and a goal-scoring forward more. Um, I'm bringing them out of the bullpen, and I'm putting them in the game, and I'm taking those other guys out. It's an interesting concept, and I don't believe for a moment that it'll ever happen. But the fact of the matter is that, that it was brought up by John McDonough and the Chicago Blackhawks um, to be an idea to fully utilize the 23-man roster. I could see the Players Association not liking it, having a, a whole bunch of guys dressed that maybe don't play um, and what have you. And it's, and it's completely a foreign concept to the hockey mind. The hockey mind is you start the game with a bench, and if, if, if shit happens then shit happens, and if you lose a player, you lose a player, and that's the way it goes. But it is interesting that, uh, that there are some minds thinking, and obviously WOB coming up with the idea, the concept of being able to replace an injured player in-game on an illegal play um, is an interesting one, but something I don't necessarily think we'll be seeing anytime soon. Uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, injuries, uh, hockey, um, hockey lore and tradition, Here's a, a great um, 
question from Greg Savoy. Dear Bob, although I don't listen as assiduously as I do, as I'd like to, I love the Bobcast. Assiduously, that's a good word. I also recently read Hockey Confidential. Great read for any hockey fan. Thank you for the plug, Greg. Uh, Greg further writes, The Pittsburgh Penguins just eliminated the Philadelphia Flyers in Game 6 of Round 1 of the Eastern Conference playoffs. One of the biggest stories of the series was the play of Philly's Sean Couturier. I'll be honest and say that as a lifelong Montreal Canadian fan, I've never particularly liked the Flyers, but as a hockey fan, I've appreciated through years the play of Tim Kerr, Mark Howe, Brian Propp, and more recently Claude Giroux, Shane Gossespierre, and Couturier. Couturier missed Game 4 of this year's playoffs with a lower body injury, came back in Game 5, and scored the game-winning goal. And today in Game 6, scored 5 points, albeit in a losing cause. After the game, the Flyers made public that he was playing with a torn MCL. All I've read about this is how courageous he is, how it's an amazing, how it's amazing that not only did he play with such an injury, that he produced the way that he did. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 79 playoffs when Bob Ganey won the Conn Smythe trophy playing with two separated shoulders and how amazing that was. As a sports, especially hockey fan, I do appreciate hockey players' guts and courage to go out and do what they love and get paid handsomely to do it despite these severe injuries. It's as apparent, though, that I found myself doing a double take today. I asked myself, if that's my son, do I feel pride for his achievements, even though his team lost, and courage, or am I more concerned about how he got to do that? By that I mean Sean Couturier must have been shot up with cortisone, given painkillers, or what other pain-numbing agent? Chances are Couturier will not suffer any major side effects from these, but he could. And that is a very rarely, if ever, mentioned topic. I understand there is an element of courage, and we all like to see people overcome pain and succeed despite it, but I'm also concerned that we too often don't question the how, what was given aspect of it. Do you think it should be made public what players take to beat pain, therefore give the public a fairer look at what it takes, or does doctor-client privilege keep it a private matter? That from Greg Savoy, or Savoy, Savoy, I don't know, in any case, from sunny Sydney, Australia. Uh, love to hear from Down Under and our Bobcast fans in Australia. And it's a fascinating topic, um, and, I, and I was one of the people who, immediately following that game, uh, when Philly was eliminated by Pittsburgh, um, celebrated the fact that Jake Gensel had a five-point game, and boy, what a player he is. Um, but I also celebrated the fact, and was, was maybe a little... Um, wanted it duly noted that what Sean Couturier did in that game to, to get the hat trick, to have the five points, um, and to do it on a torn MCL. I had known that going from, from the time he was injured in that, in that practice mishap with Radko Gudis, that he had a serious injury. Um, I didn't report the specific nature of it. I didn't know the specific nature of it other than then uh, Couturier would be normally out week to week, uh, multiple weeks with this type of injury. So it was remarkable for me to see him come back in in Game 5 and get the game-winning goal, and it was even more remarkable to see how well he played in Game 6. And, and to Greg's point, I don't think there's any doubt that he had to see Dr. Feelgood in order to, to play in that game. Um, I don't think we. I don't think the public is entitled to know what players will do. Um, I understand that lines can be crossed uh, in order, I guess, for a player to get himself fit enough to play a game. Um, but I think that's the nature of professional sports, and everybody's got to take their own responsibility for what they do and how that might affect their career and negatively impact it. And I don't doubt for a minute that there are many hockey players and many athletes who have negatively impacted their career. I guess the one exception that we're starting to make, and we talked about it earlier with the devastating um, effects of, of hits to the head, is concussions. And that's one where we don't, we're, we're, we're trying not to allow players to make that call, that that decision has to be taken out because the brain is a, is a different thing because the brain is going to affect your, your quality of life um, more so than a knee. But to Greg's point, it's well taken. Um, players are willing to do just about anything to stay in the game, sacrifice their health, maybe sacrifice their career, maybe sacrifice their long-term health um, to stay in the game. But that's really sort of the nature of pro sports, and it's why I don't do it. It's why Greg doesn't do it, because these are people who are 
the elite of what they do, and they play a dangerous game. And they are, and it, it's it's not hyperbole to say that in many respects, professional athletes are taking their life in their hands when they play this game, because the dangers in these games are very real, and um, it's fascinating the amount of pain that they're willing to endure, and what they can tolerate, and the lengths they'll go to stay in the game. Um, I think we view it as mostly an admirable trait, but I do understand that there's another side to it, and Greg wanted to raise that. All right, then, time for some uh, listener feedback. Uh, This comes from Steve Parks. Dear Bob, on the last Bobcast, you talked about one of the young men of the humble Broncos being an organ donor and encouraged others to do the same. I don't know if you ever heard of Brian Clausen, but he was a shooting star in American auto racing who was killed a couple of years back racing in Kansas. His story of organ donorship is truly inspirational. ESPN did a story on him, his death, and his legacy. I encourage you to take a few minutes to look it up and watch it and encourage your listeners to watch it as well. If you were ever on the fence on this subject, I'm sure this will persuade you to make the right decision. As always, Bob, love your work and the Bobcast. Keep it up and enjoy the rest of the playoffs in the summer. Yours truly, Steve Parks, a Red Wing fan in Gary, Indiana. So thank you, Steve. Um, very thoughtful letter. And yes, I will, uh, by all means, um, Check out the Brian Clausen story for sure, and I would encourage all Bobcast listeners to do the same on that recommendation. Gary, Indiana, eh, Steve? What's the, the, the team's what they call the South Shore Railcats. That's a baseball team in Gary. I drove by Gary, uh, drove by through Gary or by Gary on the way to Chicago once, and I saw a sign for the Railcats, and I thought that was a really cool name. Uh, in any case, a little more on um, organ donation, and we talked about that in the last episode of the Bobcast um, about uh, the, the the Humboldt Broncos. Um, I want to mention another source of um, organs for transplantation that doesn't get talked about as much, and that is living donation. Now, think about this for a minute. Um, last year, there were 300 liver transplants done in Ontario, for example, and 50 were done from a living donation. Um, now, there apparently, apparently, I guess there's 1,600 people in Ontario who are on transplant waiting lists. So it's pretty obvious the supply of living donors doesn't meet the demand, which is why it's critically important um, to encourage colleagues, friends, and family to consider registering their consent to organ and tissue donation. Now, I do have a little bit of experience with this. A few months ago, a friend of mine, uh, Chris from Canada, uh, he he does the show notes for us. He was um, less than a couple of days away from donating two-thirds of his liver to his brother um, when suddenly a donor liver was found and successfully transplanted. So I did tell Chris that I was going to do some of uh, the Bobcast on organ donation in light of what happened in Humboldt and in light of the listener feedback that we had this week. And, uh, and was there anything that he might want to add to that conversation as somebody who came very close to making a living donation to his brother? And uh, uh, in true Chris from Canada fashion, he said, quote, make sure you tell people how supportive of a friend you were to me. Like when we were in a restaurant in Toronto, standing at the urinals, and you said, if your brother's best chance at survival is your liver, he's f***ed. <laughs> or the time he said, time you said, if your liver passes the breathalyzer test, well, then we all have a chance. Now, in fairness to me, I do remember saying all those things. And in my defense, I was trying to lighten a pretty serious subject. And on the flip side of that, now that I uh, know this, all of this, I know that when my health takes a turn for the worse, Chris will be the first one there um, with either drafts of my eulogy or preparing to make a living donation to uh, save my life. Uh, listen, I understand this whole living donation thing is, is a head trip for a lot of people. Um, but obviously for a family member, it's something that, uh, that people are prepared to do um, because it can reduce wait times to a matter of months instead of possibly years for a deceased donation that, quite frankly, may never come. So I guess what I would say is this. Um, obviously, if you have a family member who's on hard times and needs help, that's something that you're going to consider. But this this whole notion of, of a living donation, which, as I said, is it's a really hard thing um, because 
you know, doctors want to make people healthy. And in order to make somebody healthy, you've got to make somebody else unhealthy um, because there obviously are risks involved with the whole idea of a living donation. But uh, in any case, it's uh, just throwing it out there for a topic for discussion and for things for people to uh, consider how to make this world a, a, a little better place. The really good news is that Chris from Canada's brother is on the road to recovery. He's getting stronger each day. So, hey, if, whether it's signing your uh, organ donation card uh, or being a living donor or looking into it or even just going out and giving blood, you do have the ability to save a life or maybe even several. Now, selfishly, from my side of it, turns out I have a friend who's 42 years old, Chris from Canada, and he has what has been deemed a perfect liver for donation, so that's always good to know. Uh, and in keeping with that, to make sure his liver stays healthy, Chris, do not expect any margaritas on the dock this year. And in fact, for that matter, don't necessarily expect an invitation to the cottage either. More listener feedback. This from Alex Sutsos, who uh, talked to us last time. Hey, Bob. Thank you for getting to my question on the last Bobcast. I showed it to my dad, and you got a real kick out of your response. I also wanted to thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. It's the first time it's ever happened. People always have a lot of trouble with it. Many times growing up, I'd be sitting in my favorite seat in the penalty box, and the timekeeper would leave, lean over and ask me how to pronounce my name before announcing it, still often pronouncing it wrong anyways. As a follow-up uh, to the cottage question, I did look in to the getting Wendell Clark's cottage. It's incredible, by the way, but unfortunately our group didn't have the financial wherewithal to be able to afford a place that nice. I don't blame you. I think it was 5K a night. Uh, we did find a place just outside Barrie, so we now have at least three different axe-throwing venues to choose from. Like you said, what could possibly go wrong? If anybody ends up with an axe protruding from one of their limbs, I'll be sure to email you a picture. Hang in there in the NHL playoffs. The second round's great. Uh, with the heavyweight matchups between Nashville and Winnipeg and Tampa Bay and Boston. Sincerely, Alex Sutsos. Final piece of listener feedback comes from Chris McGurk. Hey, Bob, thanks for taking the time to read this. I've only recently started listening to your podcast, and yours was the first one I subscribed to. It's a great way to catch up on things. As I walk Babs, my two-year-old pit bull mixed pound pup, I got back last July through the not-so-mean streets of Appleton, Wisconsin. Since you only produce a pod once every two weeks, I need to fill the walk time with other podcasts. Today, I caught the Jay and Dan podcast, the April 30th edition, and their very special guest was none other than Jeff O'Neill, the O-Dog. They were in serious hockey talk when your name came up as someone that would make an amazing GM of an NHL team. This is where the discussion kind of went off the rails. All three started bemoaning the fact that you've never invited them to what I could only imagine the wonderful sanctuary is that you call your cottage. They were rather harsh when speaking of this, and I came out of the interview with the thought that Jeff should henceforth be known as Salty O-Dog. Seems like a terrible idea to let any of these hooligans anywhere near your peace on earth. Could you please comment? You've always been my go-to guy for hockey info. It's not true until Bob says it's true as what I tell my American friends. Looking for hockey news. Thanks for 35 years of entertainment and information. Chris McGurk. Well, Chris, um, to your uh, question, could I comment on O-Dog, Jay and Dan ever coming to the cottage? Yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, that's pretty much it for this edition of the Bobcast. I do, however, want to end it on a bit of a solemn note. Um, we got the terrible news on Thursday on the passing of Bill Torrey, um, an absolute legend in the game of hockey for everything that he accomplished um, with the New York Islanders, uh, amongst other organizations. Um, but you know what? Just a legendary human being, um, one of the best people I've ever met in this game. And it's funny, I, I started covering the National Hockey League. Um, well, I became the editor-in-chief of the Hockey News on June 1st, 1982. Um, so it was right at the tail end of the New York Islander dynasty. And to get to cover the league and be exposed immediately to people like Bill Torrey and Al Arbor, who, who spearheaded that New York Islander dynasty, um, was a really good example to a young guy like myself about how you treat people. And, and a guy like Bill Torrey, I, I was a 
25, 26-year-old kid, no-nothing kid coming in. And right from day one, my very first contact with him, um, he treated me like I'd been in the league for 50 years and just an enormous amount of respect. And as I said, just a, an unbelievable hockey mind. Um, the Islanders, the Florida Panthers, everything he did. And it, it's funny because he was a graduate of St. Lawrence University, and I never never knew at the time that, that, that I got to meet Bill or thought about St. Lawrence University that my son Mike would end up going there and being part of that St. Lawrence family along with Bill Torrey and Ray Shiro and Randy Sexton and, and so many others. And um, so first and foremost, uh, to all of Bill's family and his extended family and friends, um, deepest condolences. Um, I also sat on the Hockey Hall of Fame selection committee. Bill's a, a member of that, as, as am I. And it wouldn't be a meeting if Bill didn't tell a joke at the beginning of it um, just a wonderful human being with a great love of life, uh, an unbelievable knowledge of the game. There are some great Bill stories out there. I'm not even sure whether they're true or not, but if they're not, they should be. So I'll just tell this little one here that after Bill had long after he left the New York Islanders and was with the expansion Florida Panthers, he was coming back for a game um, at uh, Nassau County Coliseum and uh, on Long Island and and was coming into the building, and uh, a guard at the building said, excuse me, sir, um, where's your credential? And uh, Bill was said to have pointed up to the Stanley Cup banners hanging up there, there's my credentials. And as I said, I'm not 100% sure if that story's true. I suspect there might be some merit to it. But if there's not, I'm uh, sure Bill did it in the nicest way possible. Um, because he was an absolute legend as a hockey man, and as I said, an even better person. So rest in peace, William. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.